welcome to the Proelium, which means the battle. The Joshua Lectures are an extension of New Antioch's classical education model. The intent of these lectures is to expose a larger audience to the understanding of the Lordship of Christ over all spheres of life. These lectures aim to address various topics within the disciplines of theology, philosophy, education, medicine, law, and ethics. Classical education engages these topics in a robust manner with an eye upon the cultural landscape and a mind transformed by the scriptures. For a reformation of today's vocations and institutions, Christians must be courageous and equipped to evoke real change for Christ. To be courageous without being equipped leads to defeat. To be equipped without possessing courage leads to disaster. New Antioch extends an invitation to you to come and experience these lectures in person. Each presenter approaches their topic with a substantial background of experience and or formal training in their particular discipline and endeavors to provide a careful and rigorous application of the Christian faith to life. Each evening's lectures will afford those in attendance the opportunity to ask questions of the guest lecturer through a moderated Q&A period following the presentation. If you would like more information, please email us at admin at newantiochinstitute.com. we're going to begin to look at Trinitarian dogmatics and uh, the word dogma or uh, dogmatic is not often in our culture used in a positive way uh, but it has been used in a positive way historically um, it it means a systematic um, a systematizing a categorizing of doctrine but especially relative to what has been agreed upon and handed down to us. That's the idea of dogmatics. And so I think that, you know, when we think about Trinitarian dogmatics, this might be particularly uh, appropriate because of the fact that, uh, of, of just how the doctrine of the Trinity has been worked out, out and fought for and distinguished and particularized throughout history. Uh, it, it maybe seems in a you know, in a very particular way, maybe there'd be a few other doctrines that we would feel this way where okay, we, need, we need a dogmatic presentation. We want to receive this systematization, even if we would want to make it our own or want to, you know, maybe reemphasize, rebalance things a little bit. Um, this, is, this is kind of your, your basic Trinitarian vocabulary, syntax, grammar. Uh, if you have been involved in classical education, you know the importance of getting those basics right. That once you understand the, the grammar of a subject, then you can begin to uh, get next to the, the logic of a, of a subject or the rhetoric uh, of, of how to explain or defend or, um, or, or persuade uh, on that subject matter. So in this lecture, we're gonna deal with the basic dogmatics, all right? And then we're gonna build on those next, uh, next, next lecture. So we're going to be covering similar terrain in both lectures, but we want to get a basic grasp first before delving down even deeper. 
and hopefully by giving our brains a week to, uh, to consider these basic dogmatics, then we'll be perhaps in a little bit better frame of mind to deal with uh, a, a little bit greater depth um, the, next, the next go round. So we wanna start uh, with our dogmatics by asserting um, just the, the definition of the Trinity as being one God in three persons. One God in three persons. We do not believe in three gods. And where three gods have been asserted in any fashion, um, uh, we, you know, we come against that. We uh, make sure that we don't get into that kind of, uh, that kind of thinking, kind of polytheism. Um, but one question that comes up, even at a basic level, uh, although you start to drill down, it becomes maybe not so basic pretty quickly, is what do we mean by persons? One God in three persons. What do we mean by persons? Now, we've already spent some significant time. I'm not going to be going more really uh, in this lecture on the oneness of God. We've, we've talked about the one essence or substance. Uh, it, is, it is that which is the, you could say, I mean, it's crude, but you could say the stuff of God. What, uh, what makes God God as opposed to creatures, uh, other things. But, um, but I think that has been asserted strongly enough. I think that inherently, with our, you know, from our own conception of Scripture, even our own conception of the world, um, we know that Romans 1 says that his eternal power and divine nature is actually clear to everyone. Uh, and that would pertain, of course, to God's oneness or his, his substance. But what do we mean when we say that God is three persons? What is a person in this context? Um, because even though we may, well, we're in fact forced to use analogical language when it comes to uh, our language about the Trinity. We would want to be clear about what aspects of that uh, analogical or metaphorical language does not, um, you know, cannot be carried over to, to God. So we'd want to do this, for instance, in defining the Son, right? The Son is Son of the Father, but not a son in exactly the same way as we might be the son of someone else. Um, so, person. Here is the traditional definition given by Bothius. Bothius was a late early church father. Um, he, he serves very much as a sort of a go-between, um, a ladder, if you will, between the early church and the medievals. And Boethius, uh, or Boethius, perhaps, uh, is, is the proper pronunciation. He states that a person is an individual substance of a rational nature. Repeat that. A person is an individual substance of a rational nature. And uh, that quote is originally back to Boethius, but uh, quoting from Thomas. Aquinas is Summa Theologica, um, who also say, states this. Again, this is Aquinas. He says, further still, in a more special and perfect way, the particular and the individual are found in the rational substances which have dominion over their own actions and which are not only made to act like others, but which can act of themselves 
for actions belong to singulars. Now, that may sound like a mouthful. What does Tom, uh, what does Aquinas mean by that? Well, uh, he, he's, one of the things he mentions here is that a person acts or wills, right? Um, they're not just the, the object of, of, you know, of movement, uh, but they themselves act. So a couple of ways that may be helpful for thinking through what this means for a divine person, we can think about the person of Christ. Now, the person of Christ, and, and those of you who have um, been hearing me preach on the book of Hebrews in our church recently, you, you'll be helped probably by uh, what we've been, some work we've been doing on a uh, Chalcedonian understanding of Christology. But we affirm that Christ is one person with two natures, divine and human. And that these natures are not mixed, but they are united in the one person. They're united forever. Such that you can speak of the person of Christ according to his human nature or his divine nature. But it is the person himself who acts. Right? So, for instance, when the scriptures talk about Jesus turning water into wine, um, you're speaking about Christ according to his divine nature. Because no human being can do that. Right? You can think of dozens of other examples. Nevertheless, it is not Jesus' divine nature that turned water into wine. It is Christ who turned water into wine. Because that action is it's something a person does, not something a nature does. Okay? So, for instance, if we think, to use another example, if, a, uh, if, if we talk about Christ according to his human nature and we say that Christ hungered or thirsted or died, you would say that, uh, you know, that those things are true because of Christ's nature, but you would say Christ died. You would say Christ hungered, Christ thirsted. Why? Because that's the, that's the locus, that's the arena of, of both rational thought and action. It's the person, it's not a nature. So, um, moving this now to the Trinity, we, wouldn't, we would not say that the essence of God creates. Right? Because the essence is the, the essence of the nature of God. What we would say is the Father creates or you would say the Father creates through the Son, or you would say the Son creates, or you would say God creates. Now, why could we say God creates if we're referring to the oneness and not the threeness of God? Doesn't that confound what I just said about the fact that um, persons, one of the better ways of thinking about persons in distinction from the, the one essence is that it's kind of that, um, it, it's the, the thinking, it's the action, it's the, it's, yeah, it's that movement, it's the thing that does. Um, 
person does. So if we're talking about not just the Father creates, the Son creates, the Holy Spirit creates, but God creates, now we're talking about the oneness. So, so does, doesn't that just undermine everything I finished saying? No, it doesn't. Here's why. In two ways. First of all, as I've already mentioned, and even just in the last lecture, the Father is normatively God. Okay? So when you are saying God creates, it is not wrong to think in almost sort of predominantly in terms of the Father. Okay? But the other way in which this is also not incorrect is that when we conceive of God, knowing our triune God, that we conceive of him as being three. All right? So you can talk about one God, this one God creates, but what you're saying is one God, not as an individual monad, nor of some other real uh, uh, essence, but you're thinking of our triune God who creates. Okay? So this is, this is revolutionary for, for those, I mean, hopefully we're already thinking in these terms as Christians, but every single time that we think of our God, we should be thinking in terms of our triune God. Right? And this is, this is hopefully this helps you understand a little bit, uh, of what, which is a very complex issue, which is what exactly do we mean when we say three persons and, and you know, one essence uh, or substance? Um, now we want to talk about uh, and define the aspects of God's nature ad intra versus his nature ad extra. Now, this is just technical terminology to mention something that I've already touched on before. Ad intra is the nature of our triune God as he is in and of himself without reference to creation or redemption. Ad intra, within, within himself. Ad extra refers to our triune God that we see as evidenced within creation redemption. Right? And we've touched on this already in the last lecture when it came to eternal functional subordination. What we noted is that there is an inseparable relationship between the two. And that those who try to make too strong of a distinction, you don't want to confound those two, but neither do you want to make so strong of a distinction that you're going to sort of flatten the Trinity completely and that everything that is said about the son's relationship to the father is, is only predicated on the incarnation. And I, and I stated, no, there's this middle ground that we need to conceive of, which we may call the eternal covenant of redemption, or even, even though I didn't really develop this, uh, you could see how this has worked out pre-incarnation in the Old Testament. So, We've talked a little bit about the relationship already without using this terminology of ad intra, ad extra. The question is, how do we develop a dogmatic uh, Trinitarian theology? Do we start by the ad extra or do we start with the ad intra? And I think the answer is you can do it either way. Um, one of the best current crop of uh, Trinitarian theologians is a man by the name of Fred San Sanders. And in his kind of big treatise, he actually starts with ad extra even though it's not logically the right order. But the reason he does this, and I don't think it's a wrong way of doing it. I'm not going to do it this way tonight. But what he does is he states, listen, we know the Trinity 
because the Trinity has come to us, or this, more particularly, the Son and the Spirit have come to us. That's how we know. We can't know anything about ad intra until we have first, you know, seen the Son and, and believed in him and were filled with the Holy Spirit and, and the Spirit regenerated our hearts to see the Son um, so that we know the Father and the Father is revealed to us in this way. So I think that you, I think there is nothing wrong with starting that way. I'm going to start rather than sort of the, the way of experience, I'm going to start the way of logic. Okay, I'm going to work from ad intra, how God is in himself eternally, and then move towards how um, this dogmatic, these dogmatics get worked out in creation and redemption. So um, let's start with the fact of within the triunity of God, there are two processions, or, or you could call them emanations. Both words have been used. Um, the medievals uh, use this word emanations. I, I don't know how frequent it is actually in the early church fathers. I don't think I've come across it much. It'd be an interesting question that I, maybe it's probably not, maybe not that in, important, but you know, where did this uh, word emanations original, originate from? But um, both words may be used to speak of two processions or emanations. And the two, as you probably are already um, thinking through this, the first is the son from the father by way of generation, eternal generation. The son is eternally begotten of the father. That's one procession. The other procession is, of course, the Holy Spirit who proceeds from the father and the son, or as I have framed it, from the father through the son by spiration, breathed out, the Holy Spirit, spiration, right? So two processions or emanations. Um, now, it's important to understand that these processions or emanations are what constitute the persons. If you were to ask what makes the Son the Son, you would answer, because he is begotten of the Father, or because he is generated eternally by the Father. That's what constitutes the person. The thing that constitutes the Spirit is that he's breathed out from the Father through the Son. Um, now again, we're always, I mean, I'm always stating this, but it's important. It's not in time, right? We understand this, this is an eternal procession. Now also what is important to note is that there's an oppositional aspect to these processions. Um, I've touched on this briefly before, that the Father is not just the Father, but he's Father of the Son. And in fact, it is nonsensical to consider God as Father unless he has a Son. So in a certain sense, although I'd be careful about leaning too heavily into this, um, you, you might be able to say that the father in his personhood has a certain dependence on the son. Now, again, you have to be pretty careful about saying that. Um, there have been some people that have posited that. You do find that in some of the early church fathers. I think you want to be a little bit cautious about, about saying and, and talking about dependence in that way. Um, nevertheless, there is an opposition, oppositional relation there. Um, so father is father of the son. The son is son of the father. Um, the Holy Spirit is breathed by the father 
and the Son, or the fa uh, Father through the Son. And, um, and so you've got some that are breathing and the, and, and the one that is breathed. All right? Now we're going to get into that a little bit more because you might even note, even in me saying that, there seems to be maybe some sort of asymmetry between the fact that father and son, son and father, that's like, like that's a really obvious relation, an oppositional relation, whereas it maybe doesn't seem quite as obvious with the, with the Holy Spirit. Uh, so we'll, we'll dive into that a little bit more next week. Um, but these processions help us to understand what, uh, what is kind of our next, the next stage in our dogmatics here, which are the properties of the three divine persons. There are two processions or emanations. There are three properties. And the properties are what constitute each of the persons. Okay? Now, I mentioned that the processions constitute the person, but you will note that there's only two processions. So it can constitute all three of the persons. The properties are what constitute all three of the persons more uh, properly. All right. So the, prop the property or the particular property of the son is that he is generated or affiliated. That's what, that's what defines him. So it makes him the son. Now the son also spirates. He spirates the Holy Spirit. Okay, so that's, that's I, I alluded to this oppositional relation. That's the oppositional relation to being spirated. It's breathing out, spirated, right? The father and the son both spirate. So the son is, his personal property is that he is affiliated because that's what makes him distinct from the other persons. He also spirates, but that can't be his property. Why? Well, because the father also spirates. Okay, so that can't constitute the person. The father, well, we'll get to the father last. The, the, the spirit is spirated. Okay, that's what constitutes his person. The son is inspirated, the father is inspirated. Right? So that's what constitutes, that's his, that is like what constitutes the person, that's his personal property. Now, what is the personal property of the father? Because it isn't either of the processions, right? Going two processions, the father doesn't proceed from anyone. Um, the father's property is paternity. That's what defines him. Uh, the son is not father. The Holy Spirit is not father. Neither of them eternally birth another. Uh, so it's the father's property um, that he is eternal. Um, let me read to you just a little bit from Thomas Aquinas. He says, although there are four, uh, no, actually I'm not. I'll leave that for next week. Because <laughs> it, it, it brings up a question that, that we're going to answer next week. So we'll, we'll, we'll just move from here. We've gone from processions to properties. Um, and then let's consider a taxis or order. Right? Um, it is by means of the processions that we arrive at the taxis or the ordering of the Trinity. The Father, because he is from none, but is rather the fount of divinity, to use early church terminology, um, he is first. 
Now, again, I suggested in our last lecture that we should not use uh, the term rank. Right? I think that that's problematic language. Nevertheless, he is first. And there are some, uh, I'll call them flat Trinitarians, that become really, they, they all sort of, uh, yeah, I'm willing to say that there's a first, second, and third, but it's almost like they do, we don't want to mean anything by it. And, but, there's, but there's implications of that. There's implications, as I've mentioned, in the eternal covenant. There's implications in creation and redemption. We wouldn't want to use the word rank, but, uh, but order is, is um, that's appropriate. Uh, the son is from one person, and so is ordered second. The spirit is from how many persons? Two. So he's ordered. And so I, I don't know if you've ever thought about this, and, and, and certainly the shape of scripture and passages we have, it certainly wouldn't, it wouldn't be a natural question to come out of our experience of, uh, of redemption in Christ, but you, somebody could ask, well, why is the Holy Spirit third and not second? Like, why is the Son second and not third? Like, and, and the answer is because of this, because of the fact that the son comes from one, so he's second. The, the Holy Spirit comes from two, so he's third. Um, moving from this, um, let's talk a little bit more or unfold a little bit more what I mentioned in the last lecture about the means of unity. Right Now here, I'm placing this within our, our basic dogmatics. Let me preface what I'm about to say, saying that this is my own ordering, right? That this, is, this isn't novel, but I don't know of anybody that has systematized these three things in this order as related to one another within their dogmatics, okay? So this is not something that's from, you can find all of these ideas in whether it's Aquinas or the early church fathers, but not necessarily systematized the way I have here. So, for, for what it's worth. I believe that scripturally there are three means of divine unity. So the question is, how are the three one? And I believe the scriptures give us three answers. The first, and this is actually a Trinitarian triad. I believe that this follows and the pattern that we actually have within the Trinity itself. First of all, consubstantiality, as I mentioned last lecture, that the Son and the Father are one because they have the same essence, right? This is, this is the most simple understanding of the unity of the Godhead. Um, it's one that Augustine leans into very heavily. It's also one that I think in the Western tradition has been leaned into too heavily to the exclusion of the other two that I'm going to mention. Um, and in the Eastern tradition, starting with the Cappadocian fathers and others, um, that they had they've, they've emphasized some of these other means of, uh, of, of divine unity. But consubstantiality is proved in some of those most basic statements, like simply, for instance, I and the Father are one. We're one. Well, how, how are you one? Father and I, but two there, how are you one? Well, you're forced to say with the same, same essence. Um, the word was with God and the word was God. 
Okay, that's consubstantiality. Um, the second means of divine unity are the eternal relations themselves. This might be, it's not, I'm not sure it's the hardest to wrap your mind around, but it might be the most unintuitive to us. Okay? That is that the Son and the Father are one because the Son is derived from the Father and so shares his essence or nature. Now, we live in a very individualistic culture. And so this idea does not appear to us quite as um, natural or intuitive as it would have occurred to, to an ancient person. So, um, but just to see a scriptural defense of this, turn with me to John chapter 5, verse 18. So in John 5, you've got the healing of a man at Bethesda. And, um, and we read that he did this on, on a Sabbath. Um, and there's some background here in the Jewish thinking that the father, in a certain sense, rested from his creative works. But in another sense, in the sense of his, uh, of his kind of keeping up of, um, of creation, his providence, that the father had to keep working. And there was actually this interesting developed idea that the father, and again, I, I'm not sure how, I'm not sure why this answer is necessary. I'm, I'm not convinced that this answer is needed, but it's an answer that they gave and it provides context here. The question was, is the father breaking his own Sabbath? <laughs> That's one of the things that the Jews wrestled with because he's constantly working. Um, and, and one of the answers that they had to it, and again, not, I don't necessarily think this is important for us, but they, they postulated, well, he's kind of above his commands in a certain sense. And so Jesus answers um, when it comes to this issue of him working on the Sabbath, my father is working until now, and I am working. So he's claiming prerogatives as understood within that culture of, of being above and the rules given to man to keep God, right? But then it says in verse 18, this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal to God. I don't think this is intuitive to us in, in the same way, but to that worldview, and I think in the in a proper way, the early church fathers would talk about this constantly, that the son must be equal with the father because he is the, they would use this word, the proper son of the father. So, of course, they're equal. They, they, they have to share the same stuff, if you will, because he's the father's son. And they would argue this even from the world of men. He would say, you all know that a son shares the nature of his father. Uh, this, is how, this is how they would argue, and I think, I think it's a biblical idea. So the eternal relations actually are a means of divine unity. The third way in which we see in scripturally that there is divine unity within the three persons, uh, or of the three persons, is through mutual indwelling, or it's also called perichoresis. So we see this in John 17, where uh, Jesus says, I'm in the Father, and the Father is in me. Right? We're, there's this distinction 
but this distinction is so interleaved, interwoven, co-inhering that there is a perfect unity. And we see vestiges of this. This is where we're going with some of our last lectures. We see vestiges of this within, for instance, marital relationship. The two shall become one flesh. Right? And, that's, and, and there's a sexual union a part of that, uh, constituting that one flesh. Um, but, of course, because there are two different bodies, that, that co-inherence is not of the same level as with the Father and the Son, the Holy Spirit. So three means of divine unity, and, and I believe this is important to keep in mind. Um, we're going to finish with a, a few comments on, we've talked now about ad intra, right? How, how God is in and of himself, eternally. But now let's move this now to seeing the Trinity within creation and redemption. Uh, a couple of important pieces of terminology to understand, to be aware of, and, and even to be able to use the right syntax or grammar. The first is one that I've, I've used before, which is the divine missions. Okay? The divine missions occur within creation and redemption, the Father sending the Son, and the, the Holy Spirit being sent from the Father through the Son. And you can see in that, um, in that relationship how closely the missions are connected to and, uh, and are analogies of the eternal relations. All right? And this is important because if there's not a close, and again, I, I've argued that we do need to make some distinctions between the ad intra and the ad extra, but if there's not a close relationship, here's the big problem. The big problem is that, okay, we, we see God and the Father, the Son, and the Spirit at work in our lives, in redemption, in the pages of scripture. We can wonder, we can delight, we can experience, but there's always this outside idea, is this the true God? Is what we experience, is that, is that God as he actually is above and beyond all this creation redemption? Maybe when we get to, you know, when we get to glory, is, is there going to be something that, you know, different? And the answer, because of the close connection between the ad intra and the ad, ad extra, is no, even though there is plenty of mystery to fathom, and we will forevermore, yet we have a true conception, if not a complete conception, of the Trinity. Okay? And that is, you have to see how the ad intra and the ad extra are close together to be able to, to get that. So you've got the divine missions. The Father sends his Son to the world, redeem the world. Um, the Son, having accomplished his mission, then ascends to the Father. The Father grants him the Holy Spirit because of he has now accomplished this work that he was set forth to do in the eternal covenant. And now the Son pours out this Spirit upon the church to bring to fruition what, uh, what God the Father has planned and what the Son has, has, has accomplished in his work as the God-man. So those are the divine missions. Two divine missions tracking very closely with the two processions. Um, but what I, just, what I just mentioned in terms of, you know, the father planning 
the sun bringing to fruition uh, or, or, or you know, applying this work, and uh, sorry, I should say the sun accomplishing the work, the Holy Spirit applying the work, this is what are called appropriations. Okay, again, another technical term. Write down if you're taking notes. Appropriations. The idea that in scripture, you've got certain works or characteristics that are assigned to one of the triune persons. Uh, we have to balance this idea, this idea of appropriations, with another term, and again, you'll want to write this down as well, which are the inseparable operations of the Trinity. Okay? So these two ideas are important to hold together. On one hand, because of the eternal nature of God in the processions, in the eternal relations, it is fitting for the Father to be seen in some sort of greater way or some particular way, would probably be the best word, a particular way as the creator. Why? Well, because he is the fount of divinity. He, he, he's the giver, even to the Son and the Spirit. So, in creation, he's the, he's the giver. He, just as he begets the Son, not in, a, not in the same way, but in an analogical way, so he begets creation. Okay, so there you've got a fitting appropriation. But here's the thing, you have to balance that with the inseparable operations. That the Father doesn't do anything without the Spirit and the Son. Son and the Spirit, use the right ordering. So, does the Son create? Yes. Does the Spirit create? Yes. Um, so, any place where you have an appropriation, you also have an inseparable operation. Except, and I'm going to finish with this, except where it pertains to the incarnation. Okay? Because in the one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, now you have this human nature. All right? So, um, you, would be want, you would want to make careful delineations about things that you would say about the person of Christ in reference to his humanity, right? So, if you say, for instance, you would say that, let's say, uh, the Son uh, accomplishes our salvation. Um, that is, that's an appropriation that's, that's more, but, but you'd also want to say the son accomplishes salvation, not without the father or the, or the spirit, but verbal operation with the son and the, with the, sorry if I got that terminology wrong. Um, but you would also want to be careful about a statement like um, Jesus Christ died on the cross. Okay. Now, you can say, because of the one person in whom there is a, both a human and a divine, there's a certain sense that you could cautiously say, God died on the cross. But you would only say that in reference to the fact that 
the nature of God is united to the nature of man within the one man, Christ Jesus, who died. Okay? You would, that, that's not an issue of inseparable operation. You would not say, you cannot say that the Father died or that the Spirit died. Right? You can say that the Son died. And so there, there you've got one kind of particular issue with inseparable operations that relates to the incarnation itself. So, um, we're going to leave it for there this evening with our kind of our, our basic dogmatics. And then what we're going to do with our next lecture is that we're going to come back and we're going to traverse some of the same ground. We're going to fill in some blanks, or we're going to go deeper into some of these things, hopefully having a week to kind of wrap our mind around some of these things. And then we'll start to develop this a little bit more next week. Let me just finish by stating um, a reason why we want to, I, if it's not already plain, one of the reasons why we, we need to be careful with our, our language about the Trinity is, uh, as, as Augustine says, no error is more dangerous than any as regards the Trinity. <laughs> All right. Um, so it is, even though I, I, I started our lectures by saying we do know the Trinity. We know the Trinity because we've been redeemed by the Son. We, we know the Trinity because the Holy Spirit has given us eyes to see Christ and to have a relationship with the Father. That yet, we do want to lean into knowing some of these, this vocabulary, the syntax, these, the systematic theology of the Trinity. It is important. Pastor Tim.